I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. My sister wrote a poem that was affixed up in our dining room, or our breakfast room, in Ottawa, Ontario, where we lived. I don't know when she wrote it, but this is my sister Rachel, and she was far beyond her years, and still is, in smarts. She wrote, Spring is here, flowers are near, the birds are singing, and I am swinging. Winter has passed, and I'm happy at last. It's funny that I can still remember that poem, but there's a perennial beauty about spring and how it brings an abundance to us. And uh, as as a chef, you know, we revel in the time where we get spring garlic and fava beans and English peas and young radishes and all those new crops that come up and excite us, like asparagus. There's another chef I know, as most chefs are excited about it, but this chef is particularly excited about vegetables. And he started a company around it, and it's a really intriguing story. So on today's show, I visit Chef Dan Barber at his Greenwich Village farm-to-table restaurant, the OG of farm-to-table, and that's Blue Hill. It's not the Blue Hill at Stone Barn. It's the Blue Hill, the original one, in the village. And it's won a ton of accolades and produces some of the most elevated vegetable dishes in New York. Dan Barber grows a lot of those vegetables himself, and we'll talk about that in the episode. If you're enjoying Hugh Hutchinson Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. That will help other people find it. We all need a roadmap sometimes. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and download other episodes like Adam Platt Eats an Amazing Sandwich and last week's episode, Matt and Ted Lee Explain Hot Boxes. Here's this week's conversation. Dan Barber plants a seed. Dan Barber. Good to be here. Good to see you after many, many years. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for coming to to town here. It's awesome to it, have you. Yeah, it's good to be in the village, right next to NYU and all the activity. The, the park seems to be bustling right now. Pigeon Man was there, covering pigeons. Bunch of drug dealers, too. Yeah, there's there was a lot of that going on, too. Um, so we are at Blue Hill, not at Stone Barn. We're in the city in Greenwich Village. So this restaurant's been around how long now? Uh, 20 years. 20 years. Yeah, we're going on 20. I opened up my, my 5 and 10 18 years ago. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. That, that's crazy how these things go. Mm. And initially, it was you and Michael Anthony. Uh, Michael was the was the co-chef with me, but that wasn't when we opened. That was, uh, that was a after. couple years afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, initially, uh, I had a chef here named Alex Urena. That's you know, right. Yeah. yeah. yeah Where did Alex go? You know, he's in D.C. now at okay. a restaurant. I've forgotten the name of it. So the restaurant's 20 years old now, and uh, and then you open up Blue Hill at Stone Barn eight years ago? Uh, Blue Hill at Stone Barn's 14. 14 yeah. years? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 2004, so. That's right amazing. Yeah. You guys just got a Michelin, new Michelin star here, shiny new one? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks. Well, let's talk about seeds, and let's. Uh, I'm really good friends with an uh, amazing Southern writer um, named Janice Ray. Oh. Janice Ray wrote a book called The Seed Underground. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Which is really, sure. uh, a really interesting book on seed stock and how we're um, basically the, the, the risk assessment of seeds and an abundance of different varietals is we've got a safety measure against blight and different things coming into the agricultural system that can devastate crops. And differentiating between seed stock allows us that safety net of some things are going to continue to thrive. 
So with this company and your initiative that you've started, you guys are going after seeds that will do what exactly? They're going to they're basically propelled on flavor profiles combined with well, they're yeah yeah the flavor deliciousness is sort of the the, the uh, mandate. It's the mandate and it's the the sort of operating instruction for the seed. But it, but you know it. I mean we that's sort of our tagline is is this this return to the flavor mutiny kind of thing. But but part and parcel with that is is like is this idea that the seed needs to yield really well. Uh, it needs to perform well in the field. It needs to have good disease resistance. It needs to be a strong plant. It can't, you know, die when when it rains too hard. You know, as as some of these curveballs we get from weather patterns these days. So, you know, I've been a, like a a, a evangelist for like old seeds. You know, like like heirloom, like all of us, all of us chefs, uh, heirlooms and heritage breeds and everything because. Because that's where the flavor is, you know. And as chefs, we like it makes us look like better chefs because that stuff is dialed into like it's the reason it was passed down for generations. You know, it wasn't passed down for generations because it had good disease resistance. It was passed down for generations because somebody tasted that and was like, "Holy shit, I want my son or daughter to taste that." And like then they just protected it, and and you know here we are. But the thing is, like you know, to to be an evangelist for that is is to be an evangelist for flavor, which is great. What's not so great is that. You know, if you if you're interested in thinking about this in terms of changing our food system to getting more nutrient dense food and more delicious food to to everyone to democratize the seed, well, then you can't talk about heirlooms and heritage breeds in that same breath. Yeah, you have to walk beyond it. Yeah, because because farmers can't can't produce that and make money. You need a you need a Hugh and you need a Dan to support those kinds of seeds. So we started the seed company where we take. The genetics from the past, but marry them with modern varieties and and select and reselect for real reg regionality. You know what is it about a particular region, either through soil expression or through through weather conditions, that express the best of the seed and 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 you know have a kind of yield and a, and a productivity that excites a farmer to grow it. But that seed selection and cross pollen or a cross hybridization is not GMO. No, no. I mean, look, GMOs, GMOs, genetic, you know, genetic manipulation. And whenever you do anything with a seed, whether you're saving it, as in you're selecting something from the field and saving it, or you're taking that seed and marrying it to a brother and a sister, you are manipulating the genes. I mean, right. that's right. So that's so it's really misnamed. I mean, G GMOs is really about transgenic, from what. You know, is the best way that I've come to like exp explain it to the extent that I understand. It. I mean, it's really about taking a foreign gene, a gene that would never end up in the DNA of a plant, and inserting it. You right. Know, it couldn't happen in nature. But right. there's a particular trait from, you know, from from a grass gene or from a pig's heart that you want inserted into, you know, a corn gene, and that that's like whether it's for a particular advantage in terms of, uh, you know, spraying a chemical that it doesn't react to, or a particular, you know, uh, nutrient that isn't available in the plant, whatever it is. It's that you can insert that into the plant and make it perform or make it express things that it otherwise would never ever be able to express if it were in you know nature's back backyard. And so that's that's what a lot of people have objection to about it. Is that you're you're forcing him, human ingenuity on something that wouldn't happen naturally. Uh, so in this case, we are marrying things that would happen in nature, but we are doing it 
really with 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 the with the most modern thing we're doing is speed it up time. We're doing what our great 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 grandparents did uh, by marrying two varieties, putting them together, and getting their offspring. We're, we're identifying two varieties that have traits that we want and putting them together. Sometimes in a menage a trois, we're combining genes. And because of computer modeling, because the genome is mapped, because we can predict these things very quickly, we can do with a seed what took our grandparents a lifetime to do, uh, you know, in just a couple of years. And that's taking appropriate technology and marrying it with, you know, a kind of old, old world wisdom about flavor and food. Yeah, I think that the, what you say is right, is that, that I, you know, the way I think about this with the seed stuff is like, is like the iPhone or Apple idea, is that every couple of years we're going to come out with an updated version of the thing we released. It's sort of like the exact, it's the counter, uh, it's the opposite to the heirloom idea, that you protect one thing and carry it forward. I was sitting actually right where we're sitting many years ago with a collection of, um, of really great breeders from around the country who came for, for this meeting. And I, and I was still, you know, I was, I was drinking the Kool-Aid of this whole idea, but I was also still st stuck in this thing of like, you know, carrying this past and like, and like, because it has great rich stories. Besides the fact they taste so good, damn good, it's like, it's not a story that's connected. Yeah, the yeah. narrative. And so yeah. at the table, it's like, that's something really special, right? And so I was talking about some variety of, of something, you know, that I was excited to like, you know, to bring back up to date. It was, it was a, I think it was a carrot from, from, from I can't remember. Anyway, one of the guys at the table was like, knew the breed and knew the guy who had bred it and said his name. And he was like, you know, that guy didn't stop breeding that carrot, you know, it, that he just died. <laughs> And and if he were alive, he'd be sitting here Still, laughing at you, saying, yeah. "Why did? Why? What are you doing? You're genuflecting off of this variety that I just ran out of time. Yeah. It's like it kept going. I, I had improvements every couple of years, and it just it was just that crisp moment. I was part because I was embarrassed from this table of people because they were all laughing at me. It was all a group of breeders, and I was like, you know, it's true. It's like we we've we've constructed this whole narrative of seeds as like capturing some essence of the past in fact the the whole point of seeds of, of uh, the whole point of, of of domesticating agriculture and keeping on top of it is to continue to is to, to feed right, more people right, and feed more make people, it abundant right and, and make it more better. adaptive to a particular place right and when right. we when we do this heirloom thing we're growing not only are we we trying to grow the past we're trying to capture the essence of the seed that's grown out of place. I mean, that carrot wasn't developed here. They, our favorite heirloom tomatoes were not selected here. And so we're compromising. Uh, forgetting about the yield factor, which is like the 1% deal. It's also just, it's like we're just giving up on a lot because that thing was not developed for this particular environment, which is what you want for a seed. Yeah, and I think that within the last, you know, up until the last five years where there's been a shift in how the development of seed is done, primarily through companies like yours, is they're developing for taste and not just shelf stability. Yeah, yeah. So, a big one. I mean, we can look at a beautiful tomato on a shelf in January at any supermarket and it still does not taste great. Yeah. But if you can come up with a, you know, a a honey nut squash uh, in this varietal, the, the new one that you're talking about with 898 squash, that can last much longer yeah. and be cellared, yeah. then that's a great attribute. Right, right. But usually taste was just not considered in that scenario. Right. So it's kind of exciting. But some of the yeah. other 
That's um, right. It's putting taste at the forefront of this because of the if decision. we're well, you just said before we we got on air here, you were saying you know we're we're in the 18 years that we've been in business, it's like people have gone from protein-centric plates of food to trying to explore vegetables as center stage actors. Which and, and if we're going to do that, we need the vegetables to taste good. Uh, we do. That's I mean, right. I, you so know, that's that's we, at the heart of this. Is but like, this is got to breed for that. The only way you can pay rent in New York is to charge sixty dollars for a carrot salad. Yeah. Now, so this is very primarily important yeah. to our business decisions. But I mean, that that goes into a really interesting thing: is why do Americans historically hate vegetables? And my theory is that up until twenty years ago, chefs just didn't know how to cook vegetables. Yeah. You know, I, I have a slightly different theory. That's I think that's right in the sense that chefs become this kind of. Uh, Broadcasting power of how 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 what the architecture of a plate of foods. I agree with that. Except, you know, looking back just on the history of, of uh, of the United of us of this country, it's like we were just such a rich country and we always ate high on the hog. We just, you know, things just flourished here. We were never forced into proteins were just easy because you had tons of grain pretty early on, and you had animals and you had space and you had virgin soils and you just like. You could constantly, you, you didn't have soils that were exhausted from 4,000, you know, from 2,000, 4,000 years of agriculture in Europe and Asia. And so you plant, you did anything here was like the Garden of Eden. And so we were never forced into the negotiations that create both beautiful cuisine, but also, you know, to eat those lowly grains and vegetables that, that are soil supporting and healthful. It's like we could eat high on the hog because we could afford to. So I think that's sort of, I think that's part and parcel of our food culture is like sort of a lack of food culture. We're just rich, rich country, but rich agriculture. And that well, tends to have us. I mean, I'm a high, Canadian yeah. kid who now yeah. lives in the American South, which is the storied yeah. place of culinary yeah. history in the yeah. States, much built on the painful reality of slavery yeah, in history right. and right. um, brought over experiences of Gullah Geechee country coming over from West Africa and be brought over. Um, but, you know, so that style of, of food was always on, it wasn't protein rich, it was no. greens rich and yeah. cured meats and things like that. Yeah, largely because it was um, brought from other, other cultures. Other cultures, cuisines, yeah. 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 The, no one the, could afford to eat like Americans. Right. And we now can't eat, yeah. afford to eat like Americans. But it's funny, because of that way that most of America ate, which was high in the hog and prime cuts and all this, I think that we learned to cook uh, meats well in the sort of European French tradition, but we learn to cook vegetables very badly. No, I think that's right. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, but I mean, in, in the past 20 years, protein prices have gone up so much that I think that as chefs, we've had to reconsider the plate. And so we've looked at trends and realized that if a focus on a Nantes carrot yeah. can be attributable and, and can be a producer of of money to the bottom line, then let's do it. Yeah. But that necessitates a third wave of learning how to cook that right. and learning right. technique that's going to drive that yeah. center of the plate thing. That's right. So when you talk about some of the seeds you guys have come up with, tell me about the badger flame beet. Uh, the badger flame beet that's was... That's an old beet though, isn't it? Bat, no, it's not. No, I mean, yellow beets are, you know, are old historically, but no, uh, badger flame is a new variety coming out of uh, University of Wisconsin, this guy named Erwin Goldman, who's just this brilliant uh, beet and onion breeder. He's a fascinating, like super cerebral guy. beet and onion breeder? What? That sounds so cool. Yeah, he's very cool. And he's very like, like I was just talking on the phone, so I was frustrated, you know, in the middle of winter, we get, we used to, this is now 10 years ago when I was on this, this like pretty meaningful phone call with him, but I, I like, we used to get these diners came in just like, the, 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 you know, we don't have menus at Blue Hill, so the waiters would come to the table and ask for allergies and whatever. And we just started to get a slew of 
of tickets in the kitchen that were like from anywhere from December to like May was like tables allergic to beets. I was like, where is this coming from? It's like, and what I learned was that like, you know, we used to serve multiple courses of beets during the winter. We sort of still do because we store like four or 5,000 pounds of beets. And so like people would wait a while to get into the restaurant and then like they'd sit down and, you know, they'd have a couple courses of beets and be like, what the hell is this all about? You know, and the captain who was relying on the tip was like, like, so immediately first thing, captain go to the table, welcome to the blue hell. And they say, I hope you like beets. Now, the first reaction somebody's like, just wait two months to get out. I'm not going to have to be, I'm, I don't want my meal to be beets. Yeah. And so they'd say, no, I don't like beets. So the captain would write on a ticket, table's allergic to beets. And I was like, what? This? So I was just talking to Erwin, I was sort of like, you know, lamenting this. And he was like, you know, I, I've, I've identified why people don't like beets. It's not an allergy, though. They just no. don't like them. Well, he, he was in search as a beet breeder. And since this was what he did for a living, he wanted to, like, he figured out that there's this cluster of compounds called geosmin. And it creates this like highly tannic taste to us. It's sort of like it has, it has influences of it in red wine. I mean, there's stuff, so, and like kids are really sensitive to it, which is a lot of the reason why kids don't like beets or they choke them down, or I used to anyway. And so, what, and he had just had actually had grandchildren, and he wanted them to be as proud, you know, wanted him to be a proud grandpa, a beet breeder, and they wouldn't eat his beets. So he went after this beet that, like, after identified this compound, he selected against it and created a beet that is very low in geosmin. We And we, along the way, we co-selected with it. So we were selecting for, you know, there's a wide variety of, of flavors here. And so we were, he was shipping us, actually, yeah, his grad students, we paid for gas and tolls, and his grad students used to drive to Blue Hill, it's a trunk full of beets, and we do all these tasting with the cooks. And then, you know, if you take a beet, you split it in half, you keep half of it at the in, at the test field, and the other half you taste, and then we identify the ones we liked, and he put those back on the ground. That was for the next year. So anyway, finally we get at the badger beet, which which he named this, this beautiful yellow beet. They named badger, and I, I'll I'll have you taste it today. It's like it's really delicious, and it's very sweet, and and it's like a it's a gateway drug in the beets. But does, does that bitter compound dissipate in cooking? Uh, it I, dissipates I, I know, hugely in cooking. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Try eating when raw, eat a raw beet, beet yeah. and raw shaved beets, and and some people they've kind of flourished in sort of modern, modernist restaurants. Yeah. In the past few years, Horrible. I'm always like, so don't cloy. put raw yeah, beets. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. And now we just serve them raw here as as a, as like a carpaccio. Yeah. But, but it was bred for that. So yeah. so that's another thing about you know I mean that's that's another thing about the company and about the idea of seed breeding is like. You know, you can start writing a recipe for a dish, not when it comes on your cutting board, and not as we have increasingly done over the last 20 years that we've had our restaurants with a farmer, you know, in conversation with a chef. But actually, we can start thinking about the creation of the recipe with the breeder, with the true architect of, of how the thing's going to taste. The blueprints. You can sh help shape the blueprints. That's a very fascinating conversation. Yeah, and I think another one of the seeds that's really interesting to me, and I'd love to hear the story about why it was created, is, is in that quest for flavors that we love, sometimes there's contrasting things within that vegetable that are uh, off-putting, and uh, the yeah. habanero is, is one of those things. Yeah. The habanero has such a beautiful, distinct flavor there to it, it is. Yeah. but it is fiery, fiery pepper. Right. So you guys created the habanada. Well, the, breed, my, the, the breeding partner, the guy who started the company, this guy, Mike Mazurik, who is a, a squash breeder and a, and a pepper breeder. And he just, he happens to not like heat. He, he, he doesn't like heat, and he also is offended by the habanero, especially the breeding work that's been, been done to habanero, which is to accentuate the heat, because that's what everyone wants, is to be floored by the heat. And he's like, that's ridiculous. It's the most 
beautiful melon citrusy yeah. pepper ever. To and me, so, it's yeah. so uh, Caribbean. Right. And yeah. There's a lot of history yeah. of that in my family, so it evokes oh, really? a lot to me. Yeah. So he 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 selected against the heat, the capsaicium, and and developed a habanata, which is a, a, a habanero without heat. Uh, it's fabulous, and also a good example of like. You know, it was a little bit of a fun project, but it was also like, let's see what, well, let's get people to appreciate what is so special about this habanero right. and think about a pepper in a whole different way. Yeah, and that it's not the heat because in the last few right. years, ghost chilies and Carolina yeah. Reapers are all the yeah. rage. But I mean, those are inedible peppers. Yeah, they're it's so the friggin' heat. hot. It's crazy. There's no point to them. It's also that you experience a hot pepper the way a bird experiences it. I, 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 and I, he made this point to me. It's like, you know the way the way peppers spread their seeds was through through poultry really through birds who didn't get affected by the heat and so they would eat the pepper and then fly somewhere the seeds would come out and and therefore peppers got to disperse around the world and like it's just an interesting way like every time i eat the pepper i'm just thinking well that's not what bird experiences a habanero that's cool are there peppers growing in washington square park <laughs> uh, not yet <laughs> I hope so one day. <laughs> Someday. Yeah. So culinary leadership in the uh, in in the last twenty years, I think, has changed a lot. I think it's interesting to see, you know, to classify what we do as chefs. Um, yeah. But it's intriguing to me is uh, economically. I'm a son of an economist. Uh, for the last five years, we've said, "Geez, there's no cooks out there." Um, but now there's an unemployment at this really low rate. How do yeah. we find great people? Yeah, that's a good question. How do we find great farmers and great people to work on the farm? And that's I mean, a great point. I think yeah. the key is authenticity and constant yeah. teaching and an allowance and a progressiveness allow to, to allow the workplace and the restaurant to be teeming with excitement about projects and things. Yeah. Uh, and giving an allowance to learn. Yeah. Um, I think well, it's what key. you're describing is is really a cooking school within the restaurant. And that's sort of what I, where I think we're headed with this is like, Maybe the cooking schools either need to radically rethink the way they teach food because because from where you and I come from, it has to include the agriculture and the and the ecology of where food comes from. And that you know, cooking schools are really lacking. But maybe restaurants become cooking schools, uh, and that you you pay to work with us because there's something there in terms of the education. I know people who work with you come away feeling like they just went to graduate school, and I. I'd like to think that's the direction where restaurants should be, high-end restaurants, where restaurants that can afford to do that kind of thing, because that's that's a that's a. But I you know, think that's exists in a lot of plays. Yeah, you, not formally. Not formally. You don't get an, you don't get a certificate for it. I mean, right, but you would have a lot of externships at Blue Hill. Yeah, we do I mean, now. We have Shippenies, half our kitchen. Yeah. Shapenies and Noma yeah. have been built yeah. on yeah. externships. Right. Um, so it's a, it's an intriguing premise, but yeah, I think you have to give people. Um, a place where they can learn. Uh, you know, it's just, it's so hard in this economy that we, you know, the most we can pay is $16 an hour to a yeah. cook, right. yet, uh, you know, there's nobody to work, and then, so how do you keep them there? Money aside, uh, for the long term, not right. for a year, for right. five years. Right, So it's where you get growth. the benefit of the Of the teaching, of the teaching. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's pause and get a snack. Okay, done. Let me, uh, here, I'm not gonna take this off. Good, just put it in your pocket. Environmental conditions has a lot to do with it too. So this, this is beets. 
grown in two different soils, but also picked at different times. So this, the orange ones is after a bit of a cold snap here, and the yellow ones is picked just you know a couple days before, also different soils. The cold snap, did it freeze? It didn't freeze, but it got super chilly. Yeah. So. And which do you prefer? I, I really prefer the orange ones, but you know the darker they went, because I think that is where the sugar gets expressed more. But the yellow ones are great too. I don't know, kind of choose your own adventure here. But it just shows that like, you, know, you can get all the genetics right, but if your soil's wrong or the conditions are wrong, well, that's the other third. And then of course you get in the kitchen and if someone doesn't season it or overcooks the beets, then, you know, so then it's like, so it's just one third, one third, one third, one third genetics, one third soil farming, farming methodology, stewardship, and then it's one third kitchen. And as you know, the one third kitchen in this is the most difficult one yeah. to get consistency maybe, maybe, in. Maybe, maybe. I mean, people talk about the weather, but I don't know, man. It's like you're cooking. You can do all this work at the seed exactly right, and get the soil conditions exactly right, and then you know the cook can screw this up in about three seconds. So, and uh, you know, that's I mean, raw, by the way. That was just what you so, just tasted. Yeah, just what, had salt. What we're and, looking and at it. is uh, two different colors of beets. One is, and they're both uh, badger flame beets. Um, one is uh, striated in lines of um, what you'd expect out of a solid yellow beet that's almost got a chioga striation exactly. of different yeah. color hues. Right. And they're shaved lengthwise raw. Next to them are a darker one uh, where the striations are less visible. And uh, it went through a cold snap and it's become, it's more mature. Uh, the sugars are starting to produce more naturally within the beet. Um, it's less astringent than the other one, which, but the astringency, which, um, the sort of acidic compound of bitterness that we commonly get in beets is, even though these are raw, is magically low. Yeah. So that's, it's very Or not magically, intriguing. it's purposefully. Purposefully <laughs> low. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this was bred that way. Now, these ones were just uh, shaved uh, on a mandolin. That's and, it. Uh, it has a little bit of a drop of lemon juice and, uh, and some salt. Yep. And there's olive oil in there? There's no olive oil. There's no oil? No. Wow. It's just the maceration of the salts bring out all that yeah. liquid. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, we're making a cocktail out of that. That's awesome. Nah. It's really good. Juicy, yeah. So then, okay, so then the other taste is, is more of like a story here. So I'm looking at three squashes. You're looking at three squashes. And, um, and they've the story, been medievally pierced with yeah, uh, nails. The, <laughs> the, the, the squash all the way to the left, the largest of the squash, just your workaday typical butternut squash. Um, and that's what was in my kitchen when Michael Mazurek, the partner of Row 7, walked, walked in. I invited him into the kitchen because I met him in the dining room. He came for dinner. And I was just so struck with the way he was talking about his breeding work and, and squash. And he just spoke like a chef. I was like, this guy was writing a recipe. It's like, I, was, I got him in the kitchen. And one of my cooks preparing, you know, some, I don't know, some puree or something for the next day with butter and squash. And I was like, it was late and I was kind of just joking around with him. I was like, you know, if you're such a great breeder, why don't you breed a butter and squash that actually tastes good? So we don't have to sit there and add like maple syrup and roast the hell out of it and get it caramelized and da da da, you know, and do all these heroics to, to get some flavor. And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he was like, in all my years of breeding, no one has ever asked me to select for flavor, not one person. So that's, that kick-started the second squash that you're looking at, which is now named the Honey Nut, but for many years was just a trial number, or several different trials numbers, which you know, the kitchen selected for the flavor, and Michael was selecting in the field for all the attributes that we talked about, good yield and a strong plan and that disease resistance, et cetera, and came up with 
what is the honey nut? Now, the honey nut went from that funny little discussion that we had in our kitchen off the cuff to today being selling coast to coast. It's in major supermarkets. I just heard Blue Apron. Do you have Blue Apron down mm-hmm. where you are? Yeah. They harvested 2.4 million pounds of it in, uh, in October. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's in Trader Joe's. It's in Whole Foods. It's going into Costco. I mean, so it's, sort of, it's, it's now getting to be everywhere. And what happened when Michael started showing this variety to distributors, actually one in particular held in his hand. He's like, no, 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 this won't work. We don't have a skew that, that would fit the squash. The skew fits that. That's butternut squash. That's not, what is that? We have to develop a whole new language. It was just like, it was head spinning to me. Couldn't do it. And another one was just like, well, if you hold the, this, this butternut squash in your hand and then in one hand, in the other hand, you hold this honey nut, which is what half the size, no one's going to pay for a little bit more money for 50% less. It's quite a bit smaller. Now, of course, you know that 50% less is really what we're talking about is breeding out the water. So we have a much more intensive flavored, much more intense flavored squash, a lot more nutrient density. So per spoonful, you're getting actually double what you're getting in the butternut squash. That's hard to explain to the, uh, but what the guy was saying was like, nobody would go for that. Okay, so enter into, so this gave us a lot of confidence that, wait a minute, Everyone's saying you can't do, no one's gonna, no one's gonna buy this, at least in the mainstream. So we're like, like, but they're, they're proven to be exactly wrong. And to your point, the reason this, this honey nut, the second squash you're looking at, got the lift off is because I started giving it out to chefs and they went fucking bonkers. It was like, there was social media heaven and they were just like, we've never met a squash. And as I said, as we know, anything that makes us look like better chefs, we just gravitate yeah, to it. doesn't matter yeah. what, caviar, foie gras, whatever the hell it is, we're going for it. And that was a good example. And then people were forced to buy it. And like lightning, it went from this creative idea to a mainstream squash, which is, you know, upending but the But like any squash old market. heirloom seed stock, I think yeah. what you guys and what Rose 7 is doing is you're creating that story. Yeah. Not creating the story. You're telling the story yeah. in a really good way that gives it the story that heirloom, heirloom seeds yeah. really have. replacing that. That's right. Yeah. I think that's right. And the yield on the second honey nut that you're looking at is about 20 to 30% less than the, than the butternut. So it's definitely, but it's not an heirloom. And, it's, and if you give us some time and some money, which is why we started the company, We'll get there with some R&D, which is why I wanted to introduce to you number three squash that you're looking at, which is now a trial number, 898. We just released it with the, the seed company this year. And what I was doing in the kitchen here this morning is I, I roasted it and I, I, I put it into this pot here with no salt, no pepper, no butter, no olive oil, no cream, no milk, okay? It's unplugged, 100% naked. And I was going to do a little dish for you, but I was like, what am I doing? The whole point of this is to talk about the breeder writing the recipe. Yep. I just wanted to take a bite of that with with nothing in it. So this is just whipped, That's, basically well, mashed squash. Yeah, with a after fork. After it's been roasted, yeah. was it roasted cut in half? Cut in half, yeah. And yeah. no seasoning on it. No seasoning. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it did, why it's did, nuts, man. Why does it need no seasoning? Everything needs yeah. seasoning. I know. That's I know. crazy. It's crazy. Just the, hitting it uh, at its height. The concentration <laughs> of flavor is something that if you took the best squash ever yeah. and slowly roasted it with maple and a good amount of salt and, and everything butter. else and butter, butter and butter, yeah, because it's got that it's inherent velvety. richness. Yeah. But you're right about breeding out for water because yeah. sometimes when you're doing vegetable purees with conventional vegetables, a lot of that taste that's occurring is just this sort of vapid wateriness yeah. to yeah. it. Well, but breeding 
for the last 50 years has been about taking on water because that's where the farmer makes the money. Actually, not even the farmer. It's where the distributor makes the money because it's sold by weight. So yeah. there, there's been an incentive to breed for water. And water is free. Or it used to be it free in California. Free. <laughs> not anymore. Not, not anymore. But Wow. Yeah. That's that... a game changer. And so this, this is, you know, this is... And, and that's what I was saying about the iPhone is like, you know, this is the, the, the 2.0 version. But we'll have another 2.0 version. Which is, it, I use the same thing with, when talking about, you know, how often we update our phones or get new phones. And this is totally changing the su subject, but I use it in an equation of how often we've changed and contemporized home ec curriculum in the last 50 years, <laughs> which is never. Yeah. And yet yeah. we change our phones and update and feel the need to, you know, make sure our Wi-Fi is always on yeah. point. And the applicable. culture is telling us that we need to be up to date with that. But with the these things, yeah, and the but not, not these telling things. Us that yeah, it is. And, and that's what we be. need to change. Yeah. By the way, I shouldn't just say that it tastes so much better than this, although I think it, the flavor is a, a bit better than this. The main... Uh, it's for shelf stability. Yeah, yeah, it's it's shell. It's it's shell. It this the honey nut you taste that you did not taste the Bravora squash that's taking over the country only lasts until about Christmas at best. Really, by Thanksgiving, it's going downhill. So there's no storage. With the eight nine eight experimental, Michael, this this brilliant squash breeder, bred in uh, storability attributes, which is really about a thicker skin, and now this stores until March. Which we tested last year. It was we, so you we were serving it in it. April. So you're, now you you're can, harvesting yeah. in the October, October or November, yeah. and then you can sell her for five, six months. Yeah. Well, that's the game changer. That's how it gets into the system. As much as this got in the system because of demand, this is a no-brainer, and the yield is more commensurate now as we're heading towards this. So, so that's just an example of like a chef asking a dumbass question. So I guess, you know, it is interesting. The, the change in food that we're fighting against is a kind of a newfound phenomena. It starts in the 50s where technology, quote unquote, makes such progress that we have food storage and canning systems and all this that quadruples the amount of groceries available, right? right. But it strips away all the nutritional basis yeah. for it. Yeah. We start having to do things like in you know, mid-1940s, even as early as that, having to enrich rice because yeah. soldiers are falling over on the battlefield because there's no nutritional value in the rice that's being raised in America at that time. So how do we, how do we plan and create outside of, not the row seven seeds is a limited scope, it's a pretty amazing endeavor, but how do we holistically look at making the food system and not just for high-end restaurants, but for everyone, how do we make it more nutritionally dense and a better planned system that's available. Well, so my argument for that would be to start at the seed level because if we're if we're not breeding for what you just said, then we'll never get there. It doesn't matter how many local organic farms we have and how much enthusiasm and support we have from millennials and beyond. If if it, if the seed is not bred for the kind of flavor and nutrient density, by the way. We skipped over this, but flavor and nutrient density are one of the same thing. I did not understand that until I was studying how these genetics work and how you select. Because every time you select for flavonoids, it's flavor. It's one, you cannot escape it. You want something deeply and richly delicious, it is deeply and richly nutritious, period. There's the, I've never found 
that not to be true except with sugar additions, you know, like donuts, I don't mean that, but, but with true flavor, there's no such thing as true flavor and bad nutrition. And that's a, that, that's, that's like a really, something we should that's be really understood. interesting. I know because yeah. we never talk about it. Yeah. We always think of something that's good for you as being less acceptable or difficult to literally swallow. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I think it's got to be whittled down to the when we talk about that. It's, it's the unprocessed purity of good food that yeah. tastes amazing and is concentrated is the most nutritious. Yeah. Yeah. That that yeah. is totally and that's again that you know so we got to breed for that and and. And the second point I think to make about this is that we have to breed for it regionally. You know, if we're going to look at a food system like the one you advocate for, which is more nutrition, more flavor, more access, democratize these flavors. Well, that's why we started the company was to do it on a regional level because look at what chefs are doing today. I mean, as opposed to when you and I open our restaurants, I don't know about you, but down south, but when I we're, we're here in New York City, 20 years ago, I had to have foie gras on the menu to be foie gras or caviar or lobster or some combo platter of that to be understood and accepted to as be a high accepted end restaurant. as oat food. Yeah, 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 it had to be. And yeah, so the, yeah. even though things were changing about that, and I want to sound like my grandfather wasn't that, but it, but it, like you had to have that. Today, you have that on your menu and you're considered archaic and out of step. It's well, actually, those things yeah. are called trappings for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. they, and, and chefs have done that. To your point, chefs have really change the architecture and our expectations for what a plate of food is. A yeah. lot of that is driven by vegetables and grains, I agree with you. So this is just, this this company is just to, to recognize that, to say if that is the direction, because chefs, as we know, they start these trends that end up bleeding into the everyday food culture. It takes a little while. They do, and it bleeds in, but then there's a sudden pushback. We saw that with kale. <laughs> kale had massive amounts of popularity. It was getting great. It was getting more widely acceptable, and then there was a kale backlash that no, nobody wants to order a kale salad anymore. Is that right? Well, but that might be in the restaurants, again. but it's in McDonald's. It is so in McDonald's, so yeah. we, we've made a difference. There's any kind of backlash is that the, the breeding stock of those of kale seeds just got decimated. And you talk right. to these, these seeds, these seed companies, they're just like overnight where we had seed stocks, we couldn't push kale on anybody. All of a sudden, we're depleted, and it's it takes all, years to bring back. Yeah, bring, yeah, yeah. I mean, those things happen with dizzying speed in America. You know, it's like, and the long game is this different architecture. We're not going to be looking at protein-centric plates of food, and when our kids are our age and and their kids, we just like it's changing. And I think it's starting with chefs, and I do think that will bleed into the culture. And so, a, a company that's breeding not just for vegetables to take center stage or grains, but also for regions to express themselves because that's the key and it's like that's also what people want now and that's being reflected in high-end restaurants in the last 20 years you know whereas you had to have lobster caviar foie gras through these major so you went to a restaurant and you expected that in some version and today you go to a high-end restaurant and you expect to have something in the region that you can't get elsewhere right what is it about you know about the pacific northwest or or particular micro regions of pacific northwest where i can get this and i can't get it elsewhere and i want to document it through instagram or whatever like that that is the new generation of chefs and restaurants happening throughout the world. A very exciting food future, I think, is that you want this experience to be singular and you want it to be expressive of place. Well, you got to breed for that. And, and, and you need a seed company. It's not going to do a one-size-fits-all that, that these beets do well here in the Pacific Northwest, in Southern California, in Mexico, Canada, and China, which is how most seeds are bred. No, you want something that is particularly expressive here and even more expressive in the Pacific Northwest. And that just takes breeding work. And I think that people are going to be recognized that and want to pay, pay for that kind of work in the future. I think so, too. I think you just painted a very uh, progressive and beautiful yeah. ideal in the future of food. So if that's the uh, 
beautiful ideal. And I'm a cynic, man. So I, I, you do, I'm glad <laughs> we, you said we, that. We I'm gonna tell my wife cynicism. you said that. I, I um, painted something very inspiring for the future. Good. Well, what's the I'm dismal? Do, yeah, what's the dismal gloom. future if we don't we don't succeed? Well, I mean, those, that stuff's painted all the time. You know, we're getting into this real dystopian food future. We're all going to be eating insects and jellyfish. You know, I just don't buy that. Uh, I mean, the way the climate's going, maybe we're going to be there before we, before we know it. But I, I, you know, I do believe that, that one of the great things about the movement that we've been involved in, uh, you know, in, 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 some, in some striking way, I think, is all about hedonism and pleasure. What, what movement? Ask you to be greedy for the kind of stuff that you just tasted. There is none. All, all like the environmental movement, like giving up stuff. You know, yeah. it's like like you got to sacrifice. It's like religion, but it lasts about as long as this conversation. Then people are off and running with all these other things. I also think that that's why the, the food, good food movement has legs. You know, it's like it's just hedonism. That's one thing the Americans are like are very good at. Yeah, they, they we'll figure out a way to pay more for something that tastes good and that's pleasurable and. That's the kind of food culture I think will drive this, um, and why I always everyone always asks me, don't you think the local good food movement will ever organic? Isn't it dead? Isn't it hit its apex? It's like it's just beginning. It's like yeah. we're not going back. It's like saying like we're going to go back to to a time when we accepted less gay marriage. And it's like we're not going back. It's like we're, we you we the culture it's the culture has accepted it. It's hit a tipping point or whatever, and now it's 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 moving on. And I think that's the same thing with food. I think we're going to continue to demand these kind of flavors as we go on. So that's not cynical. That's even being more progressive and happy about the future. But I do. I think it belongs to the gourmet, the future. And I do think these flavors will be more and more democratized. But we better we better start breeding for it now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the flavors will become will ebb down to all levels in society eventually. We hope that. But I think that's got to be um, tendentially. Um, empowered with better education within food um, at yeah, all levels, right. mostly in the public right. school systems. I think we're really keen, you know, chefs have always been like, oh, well, let's jump into the cafeterias and fix, fix the food system from there. But I think there's an empowerment of individuals yeah. at a young age that needs to start yeah. happening yeah. Um, more and more because yeah, every kid malleable. should know yeah, how exactly. to cook this. And you'll never accept anything yeah. less. Because I realize <laughs> we're in a Michelin-starred restaurant, but this should not be difficult to cook. No, this one no, thing. This no. is a squash puree. I just, I, I just baked it. Yeah. And so. remember the expense, man. It's the same it's thing. It's the cost so, of a so, squash. Yeah. So it's like, I don't buy this thing that the, these flavors are elitist. They're if, not. No, but if this is the new trappings of fine dining I'm totally in. Me too. Me too. A, and I want it out of the white tablecloth cathedral of restaurants. I want it in Walmart. That's the North Star of this whole thing. Is get it in the, because this there's such a it's such a false choice. You can have good nutritious food and pay a lot or you can save your money and and, and eat cheap. And that is a false divide. That's what the industry wants you to know. It's not no, true. I, this I want, proves it. I want goodness to be inexpensive. Yeah, inexpensive and cheap or yeah, completely converse. But, but what you, I think what you started with was exactly right. Is who's going to be? Who, where's the labor in all this? Who's yeah. going to be farming this? Because this isn't machine farming. This is this. We need we need people to farm this. We need work, and we need people to cook it. It's I mean, the same feel, problem. Do both you of feel them. good about the future of farming in America? I no, mean, I know no, you did that the, part. I, I the I, young I, farmers. Conference. Yeah, because all the money's yeah the young yeah thanks, but all the all the money in tech is going towards, you know, 60 high story, you know, indoor growing hydroponic crap. It's crazy. It's crazy. It just makes me so angry. And that's where some of the best talent is going is towards that kind of technology. Whereas 
the biological world and the farmland that's available to us is right outside our doorstep practically in every city it's there or was there or it's disappearing it's just it's low-hanging fruit and that that seems so striking to me that it's that the opportunity there seems huge and yet we're turning our backs on it but you know we love to we love to invest in the whiz bang technology of the next new thing the iphone and we don't we don't have a language for the biology we just we don't know how to describe how how soil microbial and bacterial reactions work in an exciting way to make people grip onto it and invest it because i don't know they can't scale it or whatever. i don't know what the hell it is so we don't have we don't have a fascination with it we have a fascination with like you know the steve jobs and the bill gates of the world and that's that's in this case is really unfortunate because nature doesn't work like that um, yeah, biological a, systems too complex too inefficient for to invest your money in which is how I, it's I have a fascination with people like John Koykendall and uh, you know the seed saver at Blackberry Farm oh yeah 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 or Tucker Taylor Tucker yeah, yeah Tucker was a farmer in Athens Georgia that's right uh, where, yeah, yeah. where yeah. I live uh-huh. for years and I remember him calling me he's like yeah Thomas Keller's flying me out uh, to yeah talk to him and I was yeah. like you should go yeah, you should go right. that's cool that's cool <laughs> so and he's still doing amazing work yeah. in the farming sector and just yeah. when he grows cultus and things like that yeah so too, awesome. uh, yeah. yeah just awesome. uh, his stuff's amazing yeah um, so what was the impact of chef's table on life anything uh, is it good? Were you proud you did it? Your yeah. episode was phenomenally interesting. Thank you. Hugh. It was really interesting about the balance of, of work and yeah. life yeah. because they are intrinsically different. Yeah, I haven't figured that one out. I had, no, no, nor have I. I don't yeah. think we ever will. No. Well, um, what do you feel like now with your children at fourteen and sixteen? Like when you look back on it, because that's what keeps me up at night. It's like, what am I? Gonna, what am I going to think when they're fourteen, sixteen? When I look back, am I going to? Am I going to be filled with regret? Or what, what, well, what would, would you say, do differently, I guess, besides I would say, I'd spend more time with them because everybody wants to spend more time with their kids. But I, I'm a pessimist and optimist at the same time. I'm half full of regret. But I think as chefs and uh, as people who have really tried to impact their communities or the food system as a whole, that requires a lot of time and a lot of commitment. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still from the generation of chefs who um, built their own things working 90 hours a week, and it took us away from everything that we're supposed to actually care about. We created subsequent parallel families (laughs) called restaurants. And that's not a bad thing, but it's, uh, I think that uh, we always need to suss out where uh, where at the end of the day our hearts lie and and what we're really um, dedicated to. Right, I'm figuring that out now. And what do do they resent you for the the hours or do they like food? They love food. Oh, they do? Yeah, they don't fight against that. And you know, they're, they're very bright and they're very empowered and they're very uh, they're their own people yeah. um and I, I, both uh, their mother and i have given them the space to grow up a lot of on their own but you know i think that i try and make as much time as i can uh yeah. given the confines but you know the, the the you have two restaurants and you know the modern chefdom is having multiple restaurants yeah. and sometimes i just wish we could all go back to the european model 40 years ago yeah. saying Made i live sense. above the restaurant That's right. um and it's great right. and uh i choose my hours now close down for three weeks in the summer i take yeah. a vacation i don't right. worry about it right. 
Uh, I think there's still Europeans doing that now. Here. I, I, know. I don't know if that's that's another. But nobody's allowed to do that. Not in New York. States. No, you can't. That goes back to the rents. But then the, the yeah, it does go back to the rents, and you have to be open all the time. I mean, yeah. I'm, you know, to be open at Blue Hill, uh, I'm, you know, I don't know how you can make it without being open at lunch. Yeah, it's um, tough. It really is tough. But it's a small kitchen. It's ever active, and it's just hard to fit those people in. So. It's always a balance. Uh, I think what your kids need to know at the end of the day is that you're always available no matter what yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, you live near the restaurant, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't spend too much. I mean, I've got three restaurants: one in Atlanta, two in Athens. I've got some management contract deals, and I do a lot of writing and yeah. cookbooks and things yeah. like that. When did so, you get out of the daily kitchen? Probably about eight years ago. Oh. And I, I'm not. I'm not angry that I got out of the daily. I, st I find myself cooking almost more than ever. And I was talking right. to Tom Colicchio, and it was funny. He was like, yeah, I probably cook more than I ever have now, but it's just for two little guys yeah. at home and my yeah. wife. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great. Yeah. You can, I think being a chef, as we think of it, is being the leader of a kitchen. Yeah. But I think what it's morphing to is being a really good baseball manager of a yeah, team. Yeah. You're putting a team on a field. Yeah. Um, I thought this guy said this, and it was most approachable to chefdom, but it's Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft now. He said, what to look for in leaders. He said, the ability to create clarity when none exists. I kind of extrapolate that one. to uh, right expediting and triaging a, a situation. Yeah. He said, having a, a leader should have a knack for sparking energy. Yeah. And then the, the leaders should have the ability to succeed in a pressured environment, yeah, which really made me think really about great. chefdom because yeah. it really is a it's a very pressure filled yeah. environment. But I think the successful chefs who are happy with the work that they've done and are content with the humans that they are can dispel the notion that all those things are difficult. Yeah. To me, it's a matter of happily triaging a situation every day that you walk into. That's nice. And you nice. figure it out. That's you nice. balance it. I love it. But you can uh, I take a picture of that? Yeah, I want to. Yes. I want to. Yeah, I want to. I want to use that somewhere. You can have it. No, really? No, I have got it written down elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I think that, that that's that's the idea of it. And I think good chefs these days are the best trainers and educators more than ever. Um, yeah. That we're training in technique and the idea. I think a little bit gone are the days of everybody wanting to cook like Farron. Yeah. Or Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah. Um, that there's a purity to food that exists right in front of us, looking at these beets and these squashes, that is now more reverential again. Yeah. It was once reverential. Yeah. yeah. You know, to me, it's like I look at apple varietals because I'm in the South and we're surrounded by apples and Arkansas blacks. That's one that's... type of Southern apple. Uh -huh. It's almost a black, dark hue. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful crisp varietal yeah. that only has a two-week window in North Georgia. Oh, wow. And teaching young chefs to appreciate that is so easy. You just have to put it in their hands. Yeah, sure, sure. So, but you're putting it in their hands yeah. with this stuff, and We're it's amazing to, to man. see. We're hoping to. Thanks for the, thanks for the inspiration. Well, thanks. This has been delightful, Dan. Thanks, man. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location by Brian Blum at Blue Hill in Greenwich Village. Scott Porch produces the show and Mackenzie Mazel edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you like what you hear, rate, review, and come back Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Enjoy spring. Eat well. Be swell. <laughs>